This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Melanie Finn, journalist, filmmaker, and author. Her new novel is called The Gloaming, which tells the story of Pilgrim Jones, who accidentally killed three children in an auto accident. At the same time, her husband has just left her for another woman. She flees her small town in Switzerland and randomly boards a flight to Tanzania. There, she must reckon with her past and the obvious and nuanced cultural differences in Africa. We began the discussion with Finn explaining her inspiration for the novel. Well, like many novels, it sort of has mm, quite a number of disparate, uh, far-reaching, little fingerling roots um, that you kind of gather together to, to form the central story. So um, the first real inspiration, uh, if you can call it inspiration, because it was based on a terrible tragedy, uh, I think it was in 2002, there was a, a plane crash just outside of Zurich Airport. A DHL cargo plane collided with a, a Russian airliner that was carrying, I think, something like 142 children and their parents on a field trip. And the planes collided mid-air collision. It was mid-air collision. And it turned out that it was actually human error by the air traffic control in Zurich. So there was a big investigation. All all people were killed. I think it was like 146 people were killed, both all the crew on the DHL and everybody on the Russian, the Russian airliner was killed. And um, so there was a big investigation. Uh, into the air traffic control uh, mistakes, and but in the end of the day, no one was prosecuted. You know, nothing happened. There was no, no justice, but but there was also no, um, no personal justice. And one of the fathers um, of one of the Russian children, whose wife had also died in the plane crash, tracked down the Finnish air controller who had been on duty at the time and stabbed him to death in his garden in in Zurich. And I had always been fascinated by that story, first of all, the, the enormity of the tragedy as the parent who had lost a child, but as the air traffic controller who had caused the accident, obviously not on purpose, but had been part of that process of getting up in the morning and getting in his car to go to work, you know, getting the coffee at the coffee machine, whatever it was that led him to sit down and participate in that dreadful tragedy. Um, and then that, then that, those two people were somehow just in, inexorably connected, and they seemed to me to be drawing closer to, closer together in in space and time until that moment when the father, you know, walked through walked into that summer garden and stabbed the air traffic controller to death. And I was fascinated by the roles that both of them played. The father's grief and anger was really obvious. But I wondered about the air traffic controller who who had to wake up every day knowing what he had done. He had no recourse by which to atone for this dreadful thing that he had unwittingly and innocently participated in. And, And I kind of almost began to wonder in that authorial way, if he almost welcomed that moment of comeuppance, that, you know, it was almost like a relief that finally someone was showing him his guilt, 
I know that's a really morbid way, but I'm, I'm fascinated by people who do really bad things innocently or or on purpose and, and have no way of atoning for them. Um, so that sort of gave me the pilgrim character, like what happens if you do this terrible thing, but everyone tells you you haven't done anything wrong. You, you know, you're innocent. You, 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 it was just a mistake. But nonetheless, you participated in some, something that was really terrible, and you have no opportunity to make that right. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Melanie Finn, author of the novel, The Gloaming. In your novel, what happens, the main character, Pilgrim, is driving in a small town in Switzerland. A dog crosses her path, and she swerves and hits three children, and they all die. And this sort of guilt and remorse is happening at the same time that her husband leaves her. So what she decides to do is she goes to an airport and just sort of picks a flight leaving soon that she could envision getting on. So she went with no plan, and then she chose to go to Tanzania. Now, for her, that was a random choice, but it wasn't a random choice for you. So why did you also decide to write about Africa? Well, there's a um, obviously there's a number of things that propel her to the airport. She's sort of being, you know, have these has these mysterious stalkings, you know, in her in her house in Switzerland, where she gets the impression that that someone is actually pursuing her and uh, with a malevolent intent. So, I mean, for me to choose Africa, East Africa, Tanzania, it's obviously a part of the world that I know, having grown up there and lived for large sections of my adult life. Um, so, and, and I also just wanted to take her out of where she was, this really isolated, sterile, sort of ceramic-tiled environment that I kind of feel is Switzerland, and put her in the most opposite place I could imagine, which is this little scrappy village of Magulu, um, which is based on a real village, but it's just miles from anywhere. Um, and, and I think the idea of putting her in Africa also was just to completely take her out of herself so that she could be free of of everything that the West was making her be, you know, this kind of vain, um, overly concerned with her appearance, you know, c- concerned with losing her husband, uh, unsure of her career, you know, all of these things that kind of plague us in the West. You know, when you're in this sort of remote village in Tanzania where people are just trying to find enough food to eat, your mindset completely shifts. And I wanted to throw her into that because I felt that then all kinds of avenues opened up for her in terms of her own redemption and exploration of her own guilt. So I, it was a very clear choice for me. Plus, I, I really, really love writing about um, East Africa. I just, I just find it so endlessly fascinating. There's so many, there's so many ways to, to write about it. And um, I think I have a good way of describing places. So it was just a natural thing for me to take her there. So she goes, and once she's in Africa, she's on this personal journey. And she meets um, some expats. One is sort of like a, a mercenary. His name is, is Martin. And then 
she meets Gloria in a new town that she goes to who just kind of had an epiphany that she's going to come help start an orphanage and that's her life's work but they're both very dark characters and not very nice to Pilgrim. Can you talk about them? Well, Martin Martin is the most obviously dark character. Uh, and again, I had based him on um, a number of extremely unpleasant uh, men that I had met in you know, bars uh, in Tanzania and Kenya um, who just would start speaking and and you would literally you just had to walk away because what they said was so ugly so racist so violent um and yet it was sort of how they live their lives africa is full of people like martin well it's not full of people like martin martin but there are certainly enough people in africa like martin martin um who you know, of mercenaries and uh, or just bitter whites who've lost lost what they thought they were entitled to. Um, and I I just felt like I, again I wanted Pilgrim to come up against this this wall of um, the violence that is really out there in the world and and who is creating and perpetuating and indulging in the violence. So Martin Martin kind of sprung out of the darkest earth as it were and is a very obvious character and and I and I I won't be a spoiler alert for the ending but I think because he was such an awful awful person I really wanted to to give him that last chapter in in which he could uh maybe finally um be a more complete a com- more complete character rather than just this very one-dimensional really nasty person um, and, it, and it was sort of no accident that his name ended up being Martin Martins, which is obviously a fake name. And I had had in mind, without really thinking about it, you know, Humbert Humbert's from um, the Lolita, Nabokov's Lolita, who is also just his reprehensible, really reprehensible character. And then as for Gloria, she was a slightly more mysterious uh, incarnation, I think, probably a combination of a number of people. Um, and it's interesting that you see her as a dark character because I, I see her as someone who has had a genuine struggle in life. You know, she obviously grew up poor. You know, she was obviously a victim of sexual predation as a young woman. She obviously loved her son and did her best by him with limited circumstances. And uh, he ended up turning into a criminal and, and being killed. Um so, and then despite all that, Gloria decided to reincarnate herself. And instead of feeling sorry for herself, she decided that there were people in the world that, that she could genuinely help. Um, there are many white people who come out to Africa wanting to save poor black Africans. And they do it for entirely selfish reasons um, because they want to feel good about themselves. And I think that for Gloria, it was really a trial by fire. The government of Tanzania, as it does to many, you know, expats who come out there, um, you really have to be committed, and you really have to learn what it is that that you need to do, and what it actually is that that is, is helpful. And Gloria stayed that path. And there are a number of women that I met out there who who really had set up orphanages, or food programs, or health programs. 
that really, really did make a difference. They weren't just window dressing, you know, for people to stop in and say, oh, isn't it nice? You know, look, they're all so nicely dressed and clean. But really, really did help. And I, I loved Gloria for that. I also completely understood why she got fed up with Pilgrim, because she saw in Pilgrim this rather indulgent woman who who wasn't making the best of her life, who was, you know, com- in a sense, sitting in her own sorrow, her own chair of sorrow with her crown of thorns, instead of actually saying what Gloria said is, how do I make this better? How can I really make this better? So, yeah, Gloria wasn't very nice to Pilgrim, but I kind of think Pilgrim needed that, so... Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Melanie Finn, author of the novel, The Gloaming. Another way that Africa invades her, and part of it is her own guilt, but she starts learning about curses and witch doctors and the mythology, although it's not mythology for the people that she's surrounded by. It's it's an alternate world, maybe for her, but it exists simultaneously for these people where you put a curse on things. There's superstitions. Can you talk about including that in, in the book and writing about that? Spending time in Tanga, which of course is one of the places that um, Pilgrim uh, ends, up, ends up also spending time, which is this amazing sort of faded colonial port on the Indian Ocean um, that is just, I think I describe it in the book, it's like it's like being underwater. Everybody moves really slowly. It's really hot. There's almost no cars. Everybody gets around on bicycles. Um, so when I was living there, Tanga is sort of witchcraft central, um, and any like large bearbab that you come across at the base of it, you'll see all these offerings. So bowls of eggs and oranges, uh, slabs of halva, rose water, um, all kinds of little charms, uh, because people believe very much in this spirit world. And I think for us, the, the best way I could describe it is this idea of that the spirit world is absolutely as real as the real world. So it's as if you're in your kitchen and you step into your living room. It's that real. It's not it's not an imaginary world. It's not a potential world. It's absolutely real. We tell ghost stories and we sort of dabble with the idea that ghosts might exist. Um, but for many people in that part of Tanzania, the ghost spirit world is, is 100% as real as the one that we're in. And so I sort of became fascinated by what it meant to believe in this in this spirit world where spirits could basically, you know, they could come, they can make your child sick, they could, you know, knock over a cup, they could burn your house down. They had this enormous power over your life and what it was like to be helpless against that. Um, 
And I thought, well, in a sense, that that's what's happened to Pilgrim. She is helpless against this this terrible force that has pushed itself in on her life, this terrible thing that's happened over which she has no control. Um, and I had also, spending so much time um, in, in East Africa, really started to listen to stories of the power of witchcraft. And I, I had my own experience with it as well. And seeing that the idea of the belief itself is so powerful um, that it can really change someone. And that can be a really good thing. I think in a continent that has no access to therapy, which obviously if Pilgrim stayed in the West, you would simply go to a therapist to help her with her grief. But when you're there and tragedy happens, sometimes that magic or the spiritual world can can also be a way that you explore and and have a way of um, assuaging your grief or your sorrow. It's also a way of clarifying your intentions. And it's also obviously a terrible, terrible weapon um, and incredibly destructive. So it's a very complicated, uh, very complicated subject and it's probably worthy of an entire book of which there are several great ones already written. Um, and I love to do a whole other novel that is much more based on the idea of, of witchcraft and how it pervades and invades people's lives, but that's another book. Do you want to talk at all about your experience with it? You mentioned you had a personal experience. Um, well, it's just a little thing, but I was in a I was in a market in Uganda uh, this is years ago, and and a and a man that I'd been madly in love with had broken up with me in this rather savage way, and I I had sort of retreated back to East Africa um, with this very broken heart. And I happened to be in this market, and I saw in the very corner of the market was this old man and had a table all set up that was full of little bags of dried things and jars and, and potions. And, and um, it said above the table, uh, you know, Miss Sessi, spiritual healer. Um, and so I went over to him, and, and almost as a joke, I said to him, do you have anything for a broken heart? And he said, oh, a broken heart. That's a very, very serious illness. And just the fact that he acknowledged that made me feel important and, and acknowledged. And he said, well, you know, it depends. It depends what you want. If you, if you want to um, uh, get him back, then you must make a tea with, uh, with these leaves. But if you want to forget him, then you must take this Thick and uh, you must smoke it like a cigarette. And he said, "Well, you know, which which would you like?" And of course, as anybody who's ever <laughs> brutally broken-hearted, that's the problem, isn't it? Do you want that person who's just treated you like something he's wiped off the bottom of his shoe? Do you really want that person back, or do you want to forget about them? And I thought of the genius of that moment that, that he was just telling me to define my intention, which is what any therapist would do. What is it that you want? You know, do you want him back? Then then move in that direction. Or, or do you want to get over him? Then move in that direction. And so he sort of looked at me and he said, look, I'm here until 4 o'clock. You know, go away and, and come back and, and let me know which one you want. So of course I came back and of course I bought the forgetting stick. And, and 
never smoked it, <laughs> but, but I felt that I had made that choice to to move on, and that 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 was the power of his magic. So I think that a really good witch doctor helps you define your intention. Do you do you want to be rich? Do you want to uh, have a beautiful wife or a faithful wife? You know, um, it's sort of almost in its essence, it's that that basic. Do you really want to kill your neighbor? Because if you kill your neighbor to get his land, you might have a whole host of other problems that exist beyond that. So it, it's really a good witch doctor helps you define your intention. Can you read a passage that speaks to you as an author? Maybe it was something that influenced you as a writer? Um, I, yep, I can. I chose um, one of my favorite books, uh, Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert. Um, which I think is, um, I often read it, I read it sort of every two years, I just think it's uh, such a piece of brilliance. Um, in terms of how he creates these characters, how he sets them up with his writing, how he creates these two characters who are just sort of destined to destroy each other, um, or he certainly wanted them to, to destroy herself. And I chose a bit right from the very beginning when Charles Bovary as a young boy, I think probably about 15 or 16, has been sent to um, boarding school by his parents. And he arrives there, uh, the new boy, um, and he's wearing this, this terrible hat. And the reason I chose his passage was that the writing itself, the description, is is is, is brilliant. I mean, you have just this complete, you're able to completely envision what the hat looks like. The rhythm of the writing is extraordinary, how he has these long, winding sentences and then just short, staccato sentences. And then finally, what it actually says about Charles Bovary himself, that he's this provincial, kind of innocent person who who grasps that the shiny, the shiny, you know, the shiny baubles without really understanding um, how hollow and... Um, unreal and problematic they're, they're, they're going to be. Um, so this is, he has just walked into the classroom, sat down, uh, and he's holding his cap on his knees. It was one of those hybrid hats in which you could find elements of a busby, a lancer cap, a bowler, an otterskin cap, and a nightcap. One of those poor concoctions whose mute ugliness contains depths of expression like the face of an imbecile. Egg-shaped and stiffened with whalebone, it began with three circular sausage-like twists, then alternate diamonds of velvet and rabbit fur, separated by red bands. Then came a sort of bag ending in a cardboard-lined polygon covered with complicated braiding from which a small cross piece of gold thread dangled like a tassel at the end of a long, too thin cord. It was a new hat. The visor gleamed. That's one of my favorite passages of all time. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Melanie Finn, author of the novel The Gloaming. Can you read a passage from Melanie Finn? Something that maybe you cha- that changed a lot or you struggled with or something you're proud of? Um, well, it's funny that the, the pieces that one struggles with are, are often, I think, the least interesting parts of the writing because they're often the joints where you're just trying to connect 
the pieces of the story that feel really powerful to you. Um, so I, I chose instead to read um, just a little bit what we touched on earlier about the idea of witchcraft and how powerful how powerful witchcraft is and how powerful this sense of, of guilt and shame and, and sort of self-punishment can, can be. So in this scene, uh, Gloria... Uh, is driving Pilgrim to um, this set of limestone caves on the outside of Tanga. Um, and she's just found out that um, Pilgrim is intending to help uh, the night watchman who works for Gloria. And, and Gloria is not impressed with this um, because she thinks that the, the night watchman is basically just, just trying to run a scam. Um, and he wants he doesn't want Pilgrim to take... Uh, his sick daughter to a doctor. He wants Pilgrim to take his sick daughter to Mr. Sessi, this this famous witch doctor, who Pilgrim herself ends up going to see uh, further down. So they're driving along. So they start with this discussion about shaitani, which are ghosts and spirits. They're everywhere, apparently. And Mr. Sessi is the preeminent witch doctor. Gloria leans towards me in a stage whisper. He advises the president. Gloria breaks at an intersection, takes this opportunity to turn and regard me with her curious owls there. She's trying very hard to locate the rat she senses scurrying through my words. A loud honking erupts behind her. Where the hell do you think you're going in such a hurry? She yells out the window, but shifts into first and pulls forward. Don't get me wrong. These guys like Sessie are very powerful. When I first got here, I had a girl who came to cook and clean. She was a little thing. After a couple of months, I noticed she was turning gray. No kidding, her skin was turning gray, like wet cement. I finally got her to talk to me. She said she was dying. I didn't doubt that to look at her. I took her to the doctor, full panel of blood work, a small fortune, no AIDS, no cancer, no TB, everything fine. The doctor told me she was indeed dying from a powerful curse. I said, you can't be serious. You're a doctor, he said, of the body, not the spirit. He told me there are certain curses so powerful that the person who casts them must also die. The only way you can kill your enemy is to kill yourself. For instance, there's this cooking pot curse. You sneak into your enemy's kitchen and steal his cooking pot. You shout a curse into it, wishing they're dead. Then you smash the pot and bury the shards in the bush. If your enemy manages to find all the pieces and put the pot back together, then he will be saved. If not, well... Koopa Kabisa is dead, but she sticks a stubby finger in the air to make her point. But you die too. That's the deal you make with the shaitani. Tell, tell me why you chose this. Coming back to the idea of how we create so much of our internal psychology, um, this idea of our intention and how we break out of that. I think that the story is in some ways apocryphal for Pilgrim. Um, she gets it into her head that the only way she can atone for what she's done is to die. And so she creates that situation for herself, and she sort of willingly walks towards her death without realizing that that's something that she's actually chosen to do. So this story was based on a story that I had been told by somebody um, she also told me about the cooking pot curse, uh, which is apparently something that is done in the Usambara Mountains 
uh, not far from Tanga. Um, and this friend of mine who told me, she, she did. She had this little housemaid who, who was convinced that she was going to die because she had a curse put on her. And she did. She died. So I thought it was quite extraordinary that our minds are that powerful that you can actually decide that you deserve to die. Just as I think that you can make the decision that you deserve to live, that felt very powerful to me in terms of how Pilgrim needed to find her way out of the conundrum that she was in. She just needed to make a different decision. Where do you write? I have a small office um, in town. We're building a house right now, so we're all living in one room. Um, and it's impossible to even contemplate writing. So I have a small office above a real estate agent in town, and I have a lock on the door, and no one knows it's there, including my husband or children. <laughs> so um, it's a real sanctuary, and uh, has terrible blue patterned wallpaper, which I cover with post-its, um, which I find a great way of, of writing, because a post-it is like just an instant thought. You just stick it up on a wall. So that's where I write. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I am a very restless person, and I think that I question why I decided to be a writer, which means sitting for hours and hours and hours at a time, day after day. Um, so I try every day to get out, either for a walk or I'm also a runner, um, and I love living in these remote areas. Uh, like here we live in Vermont, so I can go cross-country skiing, and in the summer I run and I swim. So the physical activity outside in the weather, regardless of which elements um, are kind of assaulting you, um, is really, really important to me. And I find I do a lot of head clearing on my runs and an, and an awful lot of writing as I walk. So I think of it still not just therapeutic, but also part of the writing process. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have a number of friends. Probably like most writers, I have two of the first tier um, of friends that I give it to. Who, Because you've been so deeply involved in the process of writing as a writer that you've lost total objectivity. You have no idea what's working. You have no idea if it makes sense. Um, so I have sort of that first tier. Give it a read. Does it make sense? The characters holding together. Were you interested? The kind of like the basic things. And then you have to have another tier of people who can read your second draft. Because the first tier of people, are, they've already been contaminated. You can't possibly take that second draft back to those that first tier of people because they've, they've read it. They already have an idea about it. You have to then have a second tier of people. Um, and I'm very lucky to have just sort of intelligent people who love to read and um, are really quite perceptive about how to articulate what they think is right and what they think is wrong. I think that's really important if you just have, because everybody has an opinion about your writing, and you have to be sure that the opinion you're getting is a considered opinion and that people are able to articulate what they really think is wrong, not what they just sort of like, well, I didn't really like that. That's not helpful at all, or that was really nice. You need, you need perceptive readers. How have you dealt with rejection? Sort of by denying it. I think as a writer, you have so much rejection um, that it just sort of becomes part of the day and really doesn't 
doesn't affect you anymore. I think you just grow really inured to it. Um, And I think also you start to read some of the comments that editors who reject your novel, they're so disparate. Like one person can say, oh, I didn't like this. And then the next person would say, well, I really did like this, but I didn't like that. And you just, you know, you scratch your head thinking, well, you know, these are two editors that they both disliked and liked exactly the same thing, or they were completely opposed in opposite corners about what they liked and disliked. So you just, it's just someone's opinion. And sometimes buried within that is really good advice. Like, actually, maybe this character really didn't work. Um, Or maybe the book really isn't something that would have an audience. Um, And then, you know, you just move on. I, I have I have one unpublished novel in in a bottom drawer, and I, in fact, I don't even know if I have it anymore. You just sort of, you just move on. There's other things to do. There's a lot of other things to write about, and uh, yeah, just on to the next. Be ruthless. And what is your favorite word? You know, I have really <laughs> no idea. I I saw that you were going to ask that, and I thought, how? What do what do other writers say? It's impossible to have favorite word, I think probably my favorite word would be wine. <laughs> it means I've come to the end of the day. It's six o'clock. I've done my work. I've fed my kids. I've gone for my run. Now I can sit and have a glass of wine and feel like my day has been reasonably complete. Not 100% successful, but it's complete. And that glass of wine is deeply symbolic for that that moment, that five minutes of, right, I'm done. I've, I've done it, busted, and I've done a good job. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Melanie Finn, author of the novel, The Gloaming. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.